2: So that's a full show. But first, we're going to talk a bit about, you know, the whole uh, vaccine things that are going on everywhere. New York will become, for example, the first major U.S. city to require proof of COVID-19 vaccination for customers and staff at restaurants, gyms and other indoor businesses. The announcement is the latest in a string of initiatives aimed at encouraging more residents to get, you know, vaccinated as as, as the Delta variant spreads. Here in Canada, uh, the voices calling for a passport system seem they seem to be growing a lot stronger. Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked yesterday about whether BC would look at a passport system for restaurants and in, in indoor businesses like they're doing in New York. Here's what she said.
3: Yeah, so there's a number of different things that we we have in our communities, as you know, and we do recommend that people um, take precautions and that uh, particularly if you're not immunized, uh, those settings are more dangerous. um, But we're not at this point going to be requiring people. There are some businesses, there's some uh, groups that are are um, making up the are making requirements that I think are perfectly valid uh, for their own um, situations where they have required that only people who are immunized are allowed to to attend. We've talked about not having vaccine passports for things like uh, access to public services but there are some things that are not, essential services where it is important that only immunized people um, get together, especially if it's in a a situation where we have more of the virus transmitted and in uh, settings like indoor crowded settings.
2: That was Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course. You all know her. Uh, The positives are that we've seen passport systems drive the uh, hesitancies to get, you know, those who are hesitant to get vaccinated. In France, almost a million people booked a vaccine appointment uh, the day they announced the health passport. Uh, that would be required if they wanted to go visit their, lo- their local cafe. But what is this? Uh, what are some of the concerns of this concept moving forward here in Canada? I'm joined now by Kara uh, Zwiebel. She's with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, director of Fundamental Freedoms Program. Hi, Kara. Hi. Thanks for
4: having me.
2: Thanks for joining me. Why are crises like we're like we're seeing now and what we saw, say for example with 911, a challenge uh, when it comes to civil liberties?
4: Well, you know, this is a, a time where I guess we're all, um, you know, at a heightened level of concern in terms of, of, of health and safety. And um, and those are, you know, important goals and objectives that the government wants to achieve and carry out. They want to keep the population safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the question is sort of how do we balance mm-hmm. that that desire with, um, you know, the constitutional rights that we have and, um, you, you know, and also think about whether the changes that we make now because we're, we're in a, a, a really difficult situation mm-hmm. might sort of just stick around and become part of our new normal.
2: Right. I mean, I think that's the case certainly in, you saw it in the United States, but a little bit here after 9-11, that some of those rules that became, went into being stuck around um, and I think sure. that people you know I'm not saying we shouldn't trust government but why do governments immediately jump to this policy to these policy changes that seem to often infringe on our rights when we maybe there's different solutions to deal with a problem that they they're, they're challenged with
4: yeah I think we, we've definitely seen um, you know a lot of instances during the pandemic where um, where sometimes the policy is something that um, it, it it gives people a good Sense that they're safe, or it gives people, you know, that that sense of security, but may mm-hmm. not actually be well tailored to, to really achieve safety. And um, you know, and I and I think there's, um, of course, now we're in a situation where we um, things things have improved, and we really don't want things to go back in the wrong direction. And so mm-hmm. um, that's another thing that I think governments are saying: look, we, you know, if we if we want to avoid this, here are the things that we we need to do. But you know, again, I think we have to question whether that's a, a true choice or whether those are there are some false dichotomies kind of operating there.
2: Is the longer the crisis, the bigger the challenge when it comes to liberties?
4: Um, I mean, this one is really, I think, unique um, in so mm-hmm. many ways, and um, and it's it's also evolving, right? It's just it's just constantly changing, and so um, the nature of the virus is changing, and. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the nature of um, you know the, the evidence around um, the effectiveness of certain measures is, is evolving all the time so um, i think that does make it um, more challenging than than it might otherwise be hmm.
2: on the surface though a vaccine passport seems to make logical sense so what's what's your what's your concerns with this, this this concept of a vaccine passport
4: yeah so i think i mean as the discussion about this has also sort of evolved over time i think i think it's it's people at different ends of the spectrum have maybe gotten a bit closer t- together. But um, the initial concerns, you know, about the idea that, you know, maybe you'd need proof of vaccination to sort of access any public place in society um, is that it it first of all undermines the idea that, um, that this is a personal choice that we make, that it's something we do voluntarily. The more um, the more restrictions we put on people who are not vaccinated, the more it starts to seem like it's not truly their decision whether to be vaccinated or not. So, so there is uh, a concern there that you know what is supposed to be an incentive starts to creep into the into the region of sort of um, uh, coercion. Um, th- there's also concerns about discrimination for right. um, for people who cannot be vaccinated for health reasons. You know, are we going to um, make exceptions for them? How are we going to um, how are those exceptions going to operate? Right. Are they going to have to disclose a bunch of personal health information to benefit from those exceptions? Um, what about people who have religious objections or mm-hmm. conscientious objections? Um, you know, um, the, the health issue is probably something that would be um, caught by our our human rights um, statutes. So, you know, the provincial human rights code will say that you can't discriminate in providing a service to someone based on a, a disability. And I think if you have someone who who for a health reason cannot be vaccinated, that you're at risk there of of crossing into that line of discrimination. Um, And then there's, there's privacy issues. You know, we're talking about um, letting a whole host of different actors in society collect this personal information. And there's certainly ways to kind of mitigate those concerns and and make things less invasive. But um, this is a a new idea. And uh, the idea that you have to share sort of personal health information with you know the
2: a, bar, a who, bartender at a, yeah, <laughs> in a nightclub yeah. or something. Well, how how do you? Yeah. I mean, you're not opposed to this concept completely. So how do you? And how does the how does your organization sort of think there's a way to I mean, re- I mean, do this? Make this you work? Know,
4: it, in general, I think we it's not something that we we support. Um, it, okay. it There are I, I understand sort of the 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 concern that um, that some people have expressed that this is something that governments need to to deal with and mm-hmm. and in some places where it's being left sort of to to private businesses to kind of try and navigate that that puts them in a very difficult position so i'm, I'm sympathetic to that concern um i think in in quebec i mean one of the things that they've said that they're going to do is um, that first of all they're not going to institute this until um everyone has had access you know access to the vaccine, everyone who's eligible has okay. had an opportunity to be mm-hmm. vaccinated. So I think that's an important safeguard. They've also said that this is something that they'll do only if sort of the, the epidemiological situation warrants it. And I, I again I think that's a good um that's a good safeguard. I, I still want to know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the governments need to be clear about what is it what is it that triggers the use of something like this and what is it that tells us that we no longer need to use it if we're thinking about this as As a temporary measure, uh, because, you know, in in Quebec, we saw with the curfew, for example, that um, the curfew was prompted by um, hospitals being overwhelmed and a concern about hospital numbers. But then long after hospital numbers decreased, the curfew remained in place. Uh So we're, we're, you know, we're concerned about governments kind of establishing those metrics in advance so that um, there's some. Some
2: transparency and accountability behind that, right? And Curfew is, you know, allude to <laughs> the dictatorial kind of systems that makes yeah, you very yeah. worried about our our democracy and all those other things. Are there successful precedences for this? I mean, Canada has its own charter and, and and we have our own way of doing things. But is there anywhere this is working? France, I brought up in the introduction. Uh, how do we how do we find a way to make this work, or is it is it just too risky yeah. and they'll just end up having lawsuits all, over the years? Uh,
4: I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think we've sort of gotten closer to um, the two ends of the spectrum have gotten closer. So I don't think anyone now is seriously suggesting that we would require proof of vaccination to access um, essential services, Mm -hmm. although um, education is becoming one that people are talking about. And to me, that's that's a concerning development. Mm -hmm. Um, The, you know, to to say we're going to use it in these discretionary settings, if if certain conditions come up, I, I think that's um, it's a bit more targeted, um, but, but I still think, you know, it, it doesn't, um, it, it's not sort of clear exactly what it is we're, we're trying to hmm. accomplish. And again, I, I worry a little bit that this is about making people feel safer rather than um, truly making people safer. Because right. the, the unfortunate reality is that, you know, you can be vaccinated and, and still um, carry the virus and uh-huh. still Transmit the virus, although the, the evidence seems to be that you know the risk is much lower. So, um, you know, I think we should be thinking about other options like rapid testing for some of these high risk places. Um, that, that's probably a better um, metric than just you know proof of vaccination. Um, but but also really it's about you know deciding is. Is this so different from everything else that we're going to really fundamentally change the way our mm. society works? Because this idea that you, you sort of have to prove, um, you know, your, your safety to access, you know, everyday places is it is a radical change to the way we do things. And I, I think we need to think carefully about whether that's the path we want to go down.
2: All right, Carrie, I appreciate you uh, joining me today. It's very interesting, and we'll continue to follow this uh, with you. And, and appreciate uh, your hard work on this. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith, and I want to always encourage you to call our buzz line throughout the show on any of the topics we're talking about. 604-331-2899 is our buzz line. 604-331-2899. You can also email me, george at cknw.com. If you have some thoughts or ideas, feel free to email me. So, uh, people were um, skeptical, to be honest. Uh, skateboarding has been successful a new event at the Tokyo uh, Olympics this year. Surfing, sport climbing, and karate are also brand new. So, if we had to gaze into our crystal ball and predict another new sport for Paris in 2024, could we see the debut of esports, you know, like video games on the world stage? Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. Hey, John.
0: Hey, good morning, George. As we're heading towards the final weekend of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, I thought it'd be a good time now to re-examine the possibility of esports one day joining the likes of skateboarding and surfing and eventually making its debut at the Summer Olympics. Now, before I go any further, I can already tell you're rolling your eyes, you're already skeptical at this idea, so... Here's John Pan, the operations lead and strategic planning for Facebook Gaming, discussing why esports should be in the Olympics in 2024. Here he was at a TED Talk session in 2017.
5: And the future Olympians of tomorrow will include esports players like Sumail, not because esports is a sport of the future, but because esports is a sport of today. Today, professional teams are competing for millions of dollars in front of millions of fans. Today, professional esports tournaments are being played at marquee stadiums like Madison Square Garden in New York City, Staples Center in Los Angeles, and the Bird's Nest in Beijing. Today, there are more than 30 sports organizations globally involved with esports, including teams such as the Philadelphia 76ers, a basketball team in America, and Manchester City, a football team in the English Premier League. These sports organizations and their billionaire team owners are getting involved with esports because they know that there are more people watching and playing esports than ever before. Meanwhile, traditional sports have been declining on both fronts. Summer Olympic ratings down 15 percent, the National Football League regular season ratings down 9 percent, English Premier League down 19 percent. Not only are people watching sports less, people are playing sports less. In the United States over the past few years, there are millions of fewer children actively playing team sports. And one reason why people are watching and playing sports less is because it is, very, it is becoming very expensive. ESPN, which is the top American sports cable channel, is on track to pay $7.3 billion for rights this year. That's more than any other company in America. Meanwhile, they've lost 9 million subscribers since 2013.
0: If you're still not convinced, then consider how the top players in the world are treated exactly like any other celebrity athlete. Kyle Giersdorf, also known as Buga, was 16 years old when he won the 2019 Fortnite World Cup with a prize of $3 million. And after that accomplishment, he was invited onto the red carpet to speak with Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show.
6: Congratulations uh, on winning! Uh, this is the trophy right here. Do you mind yeah. if I bring it up? That's yeah, good. Wow, it's actually yeah. really heavy. Look at this.
7: Yeah. Oh. That the right
6: there. That's really heavy. Yeah. Uh, wow, what a great, what a great trophy! Well, uh, what are you gonna do with this?
7: Uh, probably hang it up somewhere, or like put it on like one
6: of my you can't desks. Hang this thing. It's hundred pounds. Nah, no, I can't hang <laughs> <laughs> You got to lean it against something. It's so those. heavy. You got to build a whole new room around it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to put this over here just for now so I can see your face, because it's giant. Um, uh, Explain this to me. How does it work? What goes into it? Because I I think people think, oh, you just play video games, and you won. It's like, no, I think there's... You put a lot of work into this.
7: Yeah, so, like, long practice every day. Like, every day I wake up, got to, like, warm up my hands for 30 minutes. Then I got to pretty much, like, you know, play... Warm up my hands by playing, like, Fortnite creative, stuff like that. wait, wait,
6: walk me through your day. So, what time do you wake up?
7: Should we talking school day or weekend
6: let's 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 talk weekend
7: okay yeah. uh, maybe like
6: 12 1 around <laughs> there oh man i want i want to be you so bad dude i'm really i'm so jealous i'm so jealous of you right now so you wake up at 12 noon yeah, yeah. and you know, before you warm up your hands what do you do yeah so what do you eat what do you eat at 12 noon maybe you have a banana yeah, okay. Yeah, gotcha. It. All right. I like bananas. Yeah. So, you get that. Uh, but then you get you get in onto the game. You start playing immediately or no?
7: Uh, yeah, I, like, get on, warm up with that, and then I go into, like, okay. a call, talk to, like, my friends and all that, go over strategies, and then...
6: Do you play just strangers or do you play with, like, a... Like a
7: no, like, a team. Like, your team. friends and stuff like
6: that, yeah. yeah you're on a team now. Mm. What, what is the name of your team? Sentinels. Sentinels, yeah. So, you get on with those guys, and you, it's Monday through... It's every day, or what is it?
7: Pretty much, yeah. It's, like, <gasps> my job.
6: That's a... Wow. And did your parents? I know they're proud of you, but huh. at first were they like? <laughs> I mean, yeah. But at first they gotta be like, "Hey, we gotta talk, with booga." Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Let's go. What is booga from?
7: Uh, my grandpa gave me the name when I was like a baby. He used to say like, booga booga booga, and I used to laugh. Oh no <laughs> so way! That's where I get it from.
6: <laughs> hey, good for that. I love grandpa. I love grandpa stories. Uh, uh, so your parents go, "Okay, well, this is fun, but you gotta get working over at like 7-Eleven or something. You gotta get a, you gotta get a job."
7: Yeah. So like. Pretty much when they found out, like, I could actually do this for pretty much a job, like, was when I pretty much got signed to the team and all that. But before that, I just did, like, little competitions and made, like, a little bit of money off that.
6: Like, how much money did you win the first competition? $100. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> I mean, $60, $100, you must have freaked out and said, Mom, yeah. Dad, this is something. I can make money. And they're like, It's only $100, buddy. But yeah. that's a lot of money.
0: To me, it was at the time. Like, to me, it, it is now. Up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was, uh,
6: well, $100, so you win 100 bucks, and then you go, I can do this.
0: And of course, this can't be a one-sided decision, whether it's eSports or surfing or baseball. The IOC needs to give final approval before anything is allowed into the Olympic Games. On that front, here's IOC President Thomas Bach at the eSports Forum in 2018 talking about that very possibility.
3: We feel the same passion uh, for your activity as you feel the same uh, passion uh, for for our uh, activity. And there, uh, as I think uh, uh, Mike said uh, before, uh, if uh, there we get uh, some uh, reasonable uh, people together and to see what we can build together through this uh, passion then uh, many things uh, should, be, should be possible and we, we sh- should be able to create uh, synergies.
0: When you see what the numbers say, when you hear what the experts suggest, to me, it looks like a matter of when and not if eSports will eventually join the Olympics. And with dwindling television ratings as younger audiences get more and more involved in the world of streaming, this eventual partnership might be the perfect remedy for the Olympic Games. <music> Back to you, George. John, John,
2: like I, I thank you for that piece, but you know what? With, the, with this argument, couldn't you maybe have chess like a hundred years ago? It could have been an Olympic sport when it was really popular. What about Lego Masters and Lego? What about just couch potato watching television? You know, in the seventies when we didn't have video
0: games, we just sure, watched TV. Sure. I could have just but, done but that George, as an Olympic sport. N- nobody's lining up to watch chess <laughs> by the millions and paying, you know, the, the world's very best chess players millions and millions of dollars for winning the world championship, and then sponsoring them with all the best top brands that are available for young kids these. Days. This is an entire industry that is growing every single year because as technology improves, the accessibility to play video games when you're a young child, when you're a teenager, it's just getting that much better.
2: But the point of the Olympics, I thought (laughs) – you know and we want to take calls after after the break. if you want to weigh in on this, feel free to call our line six zero four two eight oh nine eight nine eight The lines are open six zero four two eight oh nine eight nine eight the whole point I thought of the Olympics was a physical your what you could do with your body and how mm-hmm. you could the performance of your body. The guy talking to Jimmy Fallon literally said, "I warm up my hands' hand for thirty minutes and and that, and I get up at noon uh you know and and it 's like that doesn't sound like particularly, pres- you know, prestigious sport to me.
0: No, you're, you're you're not wrong, and I'll say like the physical elements of actually moving your body are not the same. But I would counterpoint by asking you, George, could you go out there and do what that 16 year old Booga did? Could you win <laughs> the Fortnite World Championship and win yourself three million dollars? Because. That's what separates the average Joes to the pros. There's always that level of disparity that exists even with traditional sports. It's right there as well in eSports. It's not as physically demanding. Like, Buga is never going to beat you in a, in a push-up competition. Uh, I've All seen right. you, George. You're a very well-in-shape <laughs> man. But at the same time, there are certain physical things that this child, I'm still going to call him child, is capable of doing that 99% of the world just yeah. cannot compete with.
2: I mean, it was Pong. I would be in like, like no problem, no problem. <laughs> but Fortnite—that's for my thirteen-year-old. He could probably make it to the Olympics if sure. sure. He's already a champion in our house. <laughs> Although my other two kids are pretty good at it too. I don't know. It's uh, well. I want to hear. So, John, I you know, I think I think this is something that, I, that people want to weigh in on. I, I think it's it's a hot topic, and it's it's about money. It's about interest. How do we keep all the other things? Because it could underwrite the cost of all the other stuff that comes at the Olympics, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, like I said, it's a huge, huge industry. In a sense, esports doesn't need the Olympics, but I feel the Olympics needs esports. So Mm. that's where the interest in the partnership is starting to come from. You heard from Thomas Bach. He's the head honcho at the IOC. I think secretly they would love to make this happen. (laughs) They just need to work out all the rights. All right, John.
2: Thanks very much.
0: You got it. Thanks, George. Uh
2: George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. Hope you're having a great day. And you know, always feel free to call our buzz line throughout the show if you've got stuff you want to weigh in on, uh, your thoughts on our interviews or any other things going on in the news. 604 331 2899. 604 331 2899 is our buzz line. You can also email me, george at cknw.com, or follow me on on Twitter if you want, george underscore affleck. So last week, the BC Tech Association released a report entitled A New Economic Narrative for BC. the report they lay out some of the ways that the uh, BC economy needs to change and move away from being primarily a goods-exporting jurisdiction into a model more fitting with BC and the world's future. I'm joined now by Jill Tipping, president and CEO of the Tech Association. Hey, Jill. Hey, George. Thanks for joining me. So, things are, you know, BC's economy generally has been booming for quite a long time, and we had a rough year, obviously. But you know, why change what's not what's not broken on the surface?
8: Well, you know, what's really interesting is what we really need to change is the conversation. Because when we started on this report, Mm -hmm. uh, I was not expecting to find what we found, which is in the last 30 years, BC's economy has completely transformed. Uh, So today, today, 75% of our GDP, 50% of our exports and 80% of our jobs across BC are in the services sector. They're not actually in the good sector. And I got to say, it surprised even me. And I'm yeah. the CEO of the tech
2: association. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's reality versus, you know, what's going on really below the surface. I think people, yeah, go, oh, we, may, we cut trees and we, uh, you know, pull you know do mining and uh, we have tourism. I think people ought to think about that. But generally, we think of ourselves as a forestry-driven economy.
8: Yeah, exactly. And and so the, one of the most important parts of this report is actually just to document the facts of, of what we are today. And then we hope shift the conversation into asking the question, what do we need to do to support today's economy? Mm-hmm. And what do we need to do to continue to support the economy for our kids, for our grandkids and make sure BC's future
2: is as good as it's past. So that that traditional economy that we had in BC is a very simple approach, right? You cut down things, you pull the resources, you sell it, you make the cash, you take a percentage. Um, With what you're describing, I think, is a bit more complicated. It involves maybe more investment, more strategy, more, you know, what is the plan?
8: Yeah, it involves... Um, mining what's in between people's ears and not what's in the ground. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's about putting putting people right at the center, right? So instead of thinking of people as a labor cost, as a cost of production, as a sort of necessary evil for the economy, Mm -hmm. no, 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 it's the source of value. People are the source of value. Talent is the source of value. Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty radical idea because then if you start to think of people as an asset in which you need to invest in order to realize economic returns – It really turns on its head how you think about things like education, like transport, Mm -hmm. like childcare, like the infrastructure that people need for their lives. And it Hmm. puts a new lens on affordability, frankly. How so? Well, I think if we think about um, growth for its own sake, like we don't care about where the economic growth comes from. We just want to see, um, you know, growth in GDP then we have to ask ourselves, does that leave people behind? Is everybody able to participate Mm -hmm. in the economy that we're building? And um, honestly, when you look around, I'm worried about um, the younger generation today and and whether they're going to be able to have the same quality of life uh, as we've enjoyed. And if we don't start addressing things like housing affordability and making sure that they have a stake in the future, um, it's worrying. So what we have to ask ourselves is what kind of growth do we want? Mm -hmm. And what's sustainable growth and what's the kind of growth that can create jobs right across the province, not just in urban areas, although those are incredibly important. And what are the skill sets that people need? No matter what industry they're going to work in, we know that they're going to need a lot more understanding of technology and innovation. So let's give them that. Mm -hmm. Let's not leave people behind or create situations where people don't have a pathway to get into a sector or they don't know how to uh, upskill themselves Mm -hmm. mid-career. There's... There's solutions to this. And if we can start having the right kinds of conversations about what we need to invest in and how we need to deliver that, then we can deliver a good um, future for BC. What I'm worried about is we're having, well, basically we're driving down a highway right now in a car at speed. I like Mm -hmm. to think it's an electric car, but that's me. (laughs) So (laughs) driving down the highway at speed and we're looking in the rear view mirror. It's crazy. Uh-huh. We need to keep our eyes firmly focused on mm-hmm. the road ahead and build towards the future. Not be distracted by the past. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how great the past was.
2: The future is tomorrow. And when you talk about affordability, it's also that difference between how much money you make and how much you can spend. So the price of a home, if you make more money, becomes more attainable. But is there any places totally. that they're getting this right? Where you're looking internationally? You're like, oh, look at that! Look at that place. That jurisdiction's really figured this out.
8: Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the interesting thing when we look around is you can see some jurisdictions, and some of them are small and some of them are large, that are really getting it right. So I I never like to, um, you do need to pay attention to what's going on with China, Mm -hmm. what's going on with the USA. President Biden's new economic plan is pretty bold and ambitious, and Mm -hmm. we better keep up with that, right? They're our biggest neighbor, Mm -hmm. biggest trading partner. But you can also look at places like Ireland. You can look at places like the Netherlands. Uh, you can look at places like South Korea, and they have done incredible work to move from being a sort of low-value-add economy to a high-value-add talent and knowledge economy, and that's the pathway for BC.
2: In the report, you talk about human capital, but you know the New World Order actually sees less reliance on humans. I mean, it's, it's, it's is it different kinds of humans that we have to talk about? Like, there's humans that will do this and robots that do that? I mean… That's,
8: yeah, it's different kinds of. Um, it's not so much different kinds of humans. It's different kinds of tasks, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole history right. of you know it, industrial development and the you know nineteenth century industrial revolution was taking dangerous mm-hmm. and low skilled tasks and automating them, um, mm-hmm. and we've found new tasks for people. Mm-hmm. So and that's mm-hmm. what we continue to see, right? Is the need for human curiosity, creativity, problem solving, teamwork. Uh, engaging with humans, human-to-human contact is central to our healthcare system, central to tourism, central to hospitality. That those interpersonal human skills are absolutely going to be the skills of the future. Uh, but sure, there'll be more automation, there'll be more technology. But there's never going to be a lack of need for humans.
2: What's holding us back here in BC? I mean, you, this report is focused on changing the way we do things in, in BC. What's holding us back? Why are we, why are we looking in that rearview mirror instead of looking forward?
8: You know, it's a question that I've asked myself a ton of times. And, and, and here's what I think. I think BC was blessed with a 20-year economic boom.
2: Mm-hmm. And
8: BC was cursed. With a 20-year economic (laughs) boom.
2: Right. (laughs) Dichotomy of
8: that, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You know what happens when things are going okay? When things are going pretty well, we don't ask ourselves whether everything's Mm -hmm. going well. We don't ask ourselves what's going wrong. We sure don't explore whether we should pivot for the future. We just feel pretty comfortable with ourselves. The truth of innovation is we innovate when we need to. Um, and so what's funny is that other places around the world that might've been more impacted by the downturn in 2000 or in 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. they had to react. And and we were lucky, unlucky, that we didn't have a bigger impact from those market corrections. Because mm-hmm. if we had, maybe we would've started having this conversation a bit sooner.
2: Hmm. What impact will there be if we don't do anything? Like, What's that gonna look like?
8: Well, that's sort of like, um, I was watching the Olympics, I've been obsessively watching Uh the Olympics, and I was sort of imagining, what if someone said to you, you know, tomorrow, uh, hey, guess what, you got a free ticket, and you can compete in any Olympic sport you like. Um, Mm -hmm. You'd uh, first of all be delighted, and then you'd be terrified, (laughs) (laughs) because everybody else has been training.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, I've had dreams (laughs) like that, nightmares, I think, actually
5: go...
8: (laughs) Right? So everybody else has been working on this pretty intensely mm-hmm. for 10 or 20 years. So the most important thing that BC needs to do is wake up and start having the right conversations. We can absolutely do this. I mean, Canada and BC are in a position to be absolute world beaters. If we're talking about building economies that are centered around people and humans and their ingenuity, then places that are great places to live and have great educational sectors and a super quality of life. We're going to out-compete the world, but no. only if we're actually competing in the sports that the world is playing.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, keep that Olympic metaphor going. So <laughs> what do you do, though? Are you talking to the leaders here? You've got a new government. like the NDP government here has got it four years to, to do some things. What, what are they saying when you meet them in your role as the CEO of this organization?
8: Well, they've been very open. To feedback. So I'm really grateful for that. We've had multiple conversations in different venues to give them the feedback and give them the data. Mm -hmm. Um, We're uh, issuing this report in part because we want it to be an input both to the economic plan that Minister Kalin's developing and uh, Mm -hmm. the next uh, BC budget that's coming next spring.
2: Um,
8: And we see a tremendous opportunity to advance what the NDP government has said they're focused on. Um, building a great economy uh, and a stronger economy for all of BC, but we have to do it by focusing on technology and innovation, focusing on skills and education and talent development. And most importantly, we urgently need to start capturing data about today's economy. We need to capture better data on the services economy and the tech sector, and and not just obsess over the detail of the data that we already have that we've captured on the 20th century economy.
2: Yeah, because I think those numbers you said at the top are surprising to a lot of people, and I think that needs to be, you know, politicians need to be reminded of that, and we as a public need to be reminded of that, that it, it has changed, and we need to think about that. So thanks, totally. for, yeah, thanks for joining me, Jill. Very interesting. I appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, George. George Affleck in for Mike Smith. (laughs) Hope you're having a great day. And yesterday, Ontario revealed their plan for the uh, return to school in the fall. Face masks and coverings will be required indoors for students in grades 1 through 12. And online learning will be an option. Sounds very familiar. They'll also be in cohorts throughout the day for learning. Here in BC, our plan for September is basically back to normal come fall though the mass requirements have uh, yet to be decided on. Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry, was uh, asked yesterday if BC had any plans to change the back-to-school protocols in light of the Delta variant.
3: Yeah, and, and currently we don't. And obviously we're continuing to work with our provincial committee on, on what are the things that we need to have in place to make the school year as normal as possible for children. We know how challenging this past couple of years was past year, school year was particularly um, how important it was for school families and the school community for children to have in school uh, learnings and we are committed to that again this year.
2: That was of course Dr. Bonner Henry speaking yesterday about BC's back to school plan. We're joined now by uh, Kathy Marlis the creator of the BC school COVID tracker Facebook page and she's also a parent. Hi Kathy.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. So what are your thoughts first on what uh, Dr. Henry just uh, stated?
1: You know what, I'm frustrated. I'm incredibly sad that we keep having to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to be talking about this anymore. The fact that um, schools are still considered this sort of safe haven is not a reality. And now with the Delta variant, which is kind of running rampant like wildfire in the interior of BC, and we can see what it's doing across the United States, that kids are the ones at risk right now. It's a very different playing field than when Mm -hmm. we started school last September, where the at-risk population were our elders, and, um, you know, a different age population, and and our kids were not sort of targeted as a high-risk, you know, group. Mm -hmm. No, they are the ones that are not protected especially 11 and under who are not vaccinated and there's a lot of high school students who, are not, who can't get a vaccine for a variety of health reasons and, and family members in their households so we have at-risk people with a very very transmissible virus that is this variant as we know is more transmissible than the original strain, and and makes people a hell of a lot sicker so this is just mind-boggling to me.
2: You know what they're doing in Ontario. It looks a lot like what we had as of last September uh, here in BC, and so they're sort of uh, obviously a different approach. They were much more strict back in September, probably closer to what you would have liked to have seen. But uh, you know, what are you asking that we stay with what we did last year and continue on with that, or even or, go, or be more strict?
1: I think it should be more strict. I think that we did the bare minimum. It took Dr. Henry until April. of of just this past April to mandate a mask. It took seven months to get that change um, and that protocol. So yeah, I'm expecting much more stricter measures because again, the target group of at-risk people are the students. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones that were actually, um, there was a leaked data from Fraser Health last year that showed that it was actually the kids that were bringing in the virus, not the teachers, not the adults. The kids Mm -hmm. were the ones bringing in most of the virus into the schools. We know kids get this virus, we know they transmit it, and we know they get sick. You know, they may, not, they may say that they don't get as sick, um, or that the seriousness mm-hmm. of the illness is not as severe as some adults, but they get long COVID, and I know the UK is opening up all these long COVID kid clinics for a hmm. reason. Um, I feel like, you know, when when you hear that, let's say there's a storm, like a hurricane, there's a warning, and they say, You know, we're getting a hurricane warning. What do we do? We board up the windows, we put out sandbags. We do that to protect our investments, our businesses, our homes. We hunker down, we keep our families safe. And I don't know why this is any different. We know the storm has the potential of coming, that it's coming, it's already here. And we have the safety precautions that we, the layers that. Dr. Bonnie Henry talks about yep. all the time. We have these layers, but we're like, we don't need them anymore. We're not going to use them. Makes no logical sense.
2: All right, and Kathy. If
1: that storm yep. doesn't come, let's say it changes course, and we go, great. We can take down the, those protections now because okay. the coast is clear. Or we know that we kept safe. I don't know what the difference is when we know we're in,
8: we're, we're headed for a mess.